Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. Every year we look forward to the Art of the Real Festival, and 2022 is no exception. In fact, a spotlight on the work of French filmmaker Alice Diop makes this year's roundup of the most groundbreaking nonfiction and hybrid filmmaking especially exciting. Diop's 2021 We, a perceptive and beautifully wrought exploration of national identity, was a highlight of last year's festival circuit. Her previous films, screening as part of the spotlight, are no less revelatory. For today's podcast, we invited critics Leo Goldsmith and Chris Beckman to join us for an overview of this year's Art of the Real, opening March 31st at Film at Lincoln Center. We kicked off the conversation with Diop's early films, Towards Tenderness and The Death of Danton, before turning our attention to standouts including Jacqueline Mills's Geographies of Solitude, Charlene Bambowitz's If From Every Tongue It Drips, David Eastiel's The Plains, Peter Cherkasky's Train Again, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So really, really thrilled to have two critics, programmers, multi-hyphenates that we love here at Film Comment and who haven't been on the podcast in quite some time to talk about Art of the Real. And I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Chris, you want to go first? Sure. My name is Chris Bachman. I'm a documentary story consultant, film programmer, and frequent contributor to Film Comment. Uh, happy to be here. You recently sent us a, a dispatch, the Sundance Documentary Dispatch. If you if listeners haven't read that yet, please check it out. It's definitely very, very good. We were very happy to publish it. It's nice to hear. Thank you. And drum roll. Oh, me. Yeah, I should introduce myself. <laughs> Uh, my name is Leo Goldsmith. I, uh, I'm a, uh, <laughs> I was like, is somebody else in there? I'm a visiting assistant professor at Eugene Lang in culture and media there uh, at the New School, uh, where I teach film history and theory and some other stuff alongside that. And I also write a bunch for, I don't know, places here and there, uh, four columns a lot recently, and also used to edit the film section of the Broken Rail. Well, welcome, Leo. We haven't met before, I don't believe, so it's great to meet you. I also wanted to note that you recently had a review of Ahead's Knee in four columns that was very, very good. And Devik and I were talking quite a bit about it. Thank you. In preparation for our previous podcast, which was a conversation with uh, Nadav Lapid. Mm -hmm. Did you bring it up? Did he have any feedback for the review or no? He said that uh, he could have used the copy edit. There were some typos he pointed out. <laughs> <laughs> no, he he, he was uh, focused on other on other things at the time. Well, with four columns, I know that's not true. So no, I didn't, <laughs> not rigorous copy editing. It was a great review, and we're very thrilled to have you on here talking about art of the real which is Film at Lincoln Center's annual sort of showcase of nonfiction cinema from all over the world. And this year, we were particularly excited to talk about it because the selection is really strong, but also because there's a spotlight on Alice Diop. You know, I saw my first Alice Diop last year when New, uh, English title We, her feature film, showed at the Berlinale. It won a prize there, and I was really, really taken with it. I know she's been making films for a while, but I feel like this film really, in some measure, was a kind of breakthrough. A lot more people started paying attention to her than before, and it just seems like, you know, a great time to give her a spotlight uh, at FLC. So I'm really glad that's happening. I have a lot of thoughts about Nu, but I'd love for our guests to maybe lead us in here. Leo, Chris, have either of you seen the film? No, I've seen, I've seen um, Toward Tenderness. Um, which I can happy to say wonderful things about. It's really, really uh, striking film, really beautiful. Almost a kind of update of like Pasolini's uh, Comitia de Amore, like, to talk about love and sex and all these things. And this is obviously a much more kind of intimate and, and a little bit almost like sort of anonymized and kind of private uh, uh, sort of set of interviews that um, that uh, Diop has with a number of sort of young men, uh, young sort of like Black and Arab Frenchmen um, who are, you know, talking about their, you know, their experiences of, of love and sex in various different ways. And um, yeah, and then I think are sort of fictionalized on screen in certain ways or sort of, you know, their identities are kind of shifted with the people that you see in the image itself. It's, it's a really, it's a really amazing, uh, very kind of intimate, um, yeah, uh, film. 
Yeah, I think that's a quality that you could say something you see in, in other films as well. And there's four films, I think, in this spotlight, right? New, which is the most recent. The Death of Danton, or Danton's Death, I think is actually the English translation, Towards Tenderness. And the other one is On Call, which is a documentary about hospital. I think all of her films kind of get very close to their subjects. Uh, New is sort of a breakthrough, I think, because it maintains that proximity to its subject while also kind of taking on this sweeping, extremely ambitious subject of national identity, uh, what it means to be French when you're an immigrant or when you come from an, from a family of immigrants, and how she is a filmmaker and she struggles with this and how she brings her family into this conversation. And I don't know, the, the, the film is really just kind of kaleidoscopic. Uh, Towards Tenderness, I think, is kind of experiment in that direction. Um, Danton's Death uh, is more of a straightforward documentary about a, a young man from the Bonne-Louise, or I don't speak French, so I'm... Bonne-Lieu. Bonne-Lieu. I call him Bonne-Louise, just like St. Bon Louis. <laughs> the Bonne-Louise of St. Louis. It's like crab um, right? right? French is nuts. My point fort. Um, anyway, so the death of Danton is, follows this uh, aspiring actor. He's maybe a, a man in his late... I think he's 27. But he's um, enrolled in the in a an acting school in France, like a prestigious acting school. He's a young black man who has kept this ambition secret from his friends in his neighborhood and the people he grew up with. And Alice Diop just sort of gets very close to him, and you and she's you know there, there are interviews in his living room. He's he's feeling depressed, and she just seems like I don't know the background of the film very much, but I do think. You know, I imagine that she was she knew this man before she decided to make a film about him. What is interesting about it is the way that she is, maintains this again this intimacy with this person and shows the complexity of this individual while also showing how subject he is to the racism of French society as the only black student, an older black student in this uh, acting school. At one point, his acting teacher tells him that he can't play the role of Danton, who is the, you know, the great, the French revolutionary. He, the subject says that that's what he really wants to play. He's his favorite, his favorite actor is Gerard Depardieu and his favorite role of Depardieu's is Danton. But his teacher says he can't do that because he has to play black characters and they're waiting for, you know, a role that he can play. So uh, that's just like the most overt example. But throughout the film, he's just sort of like, you know, navigating this world where he's clearly uncomfortable and it makes him depressed. And but he just is really struggling to like pursue his ambition. It's interesting to think about how like the the relationship that you're describing there sort of maybe kind of matches a little bit of what's going on in Towards Tenderness because it's a, a lot about this kind of uh, kind of internalized violence, very sort of like Fanonian kind of con concepts that I think she's playing with. And in Towards Tenderness, it's about how these kinds of things manifest in um, kind of received ideas about love and sexuality that are sometimes, you know, shocking but not surprising from like young hetero guys, but like uh, something that she's able to draw out from the subjects in a way that I think is really remarkable and and something that really kind of forces actually, I think through this process of conversation, forces the subjects to kind of, you know, vocalize and then kind of reconsider maybe their own idea attitudes about what being a man is, what being a heterosexual man means um, uh, in ways that I think are really um, uh, quite striking. And that, that kind of... It's amazing how self-aware they are. Yeah makes me think that or makes it feel like it's that that process of self-awareness is like happening in real time somehow which i think is really quite striking yeah i mean the reason i was really struck by new was that in many ways it's pretty conventional as a documentary and it uses a lot of strategies that i identify with contemporary ethnography and a lot of contemporary ethnography that's maybe challenging more jaded colonial approaches to ethnography. Filmmakers like Alice Diop, like immigrant filmmakers, filmmakers of color who are interviewing the personal and the political to make these kind of observational documentaries that are not so much like gawping as, you know, probing into something else and redefining what it means to see an other through the camera. And it uses a lot of those techniques. There's home video, you know, there's interview segments, observational and kind of verite segments of urban life. And yet, like, I couldn't quite articulate what it was that made it stand out and made it seem different than I I feel like the many documentaries I see, which are assemblages of these different techniques. 
And there's just something about her attention to, you know, in between things that I, you know, I'm struggling to articulate, but even the fact that the film is structured along the train routes, the trains that connect the Bonlieu to the city center, you know, there's this kind of geographic attention to how race and labor and economic disparities pan out in the way that she's constructing the film, in the way that she's choosing vignettes and tying them together and the spine of the film. And what that means is that I think Obviously, the films are touching upon issues of racism and immigration, but somehow they don't seem to be departing from whiteness as the reference point. Like there's something where the worlds she's capturing, whether they're her own family, her relatives, these urban or suburban worlds, they just seem whole in themselves. And of course, the city center is invoked, whiteness is invoked, and towards tenderness, there's this line that I found, I mean, it really kind of heartbreaking. Like it touched me very deeply when one of the interviewees says, white people know how to love. Like love is a white person's thing. And white people know how to love because their parents show it to them. And we, I, I've never seen. Also because they have time. Because they're not working all the time, right? Yeah, and he also says because they have time, I've never seen my parents. My dad respects my mom, but I've never seen love. And it really, really deeply moved me because it also, it, it's bringing together a lot of different things without necessarily making like whiteness, you know, the default or, you know, whiteness, the thing against which these people's lives is defined as a deprivation or a negation. But instead really like thinking about I mean, what it made me think about, because I have often grappled with, for instance, the ways in which love is discussed in the media and in mainstream culture is so tied to like Western individuality, like the big literary cliches of love somehow seem so interwoven with Western liberal life. And the way these men are talking about that gets to that, you know, it's not so simple as immigrant families are too traditional or immigrant families don't allow for tenderness. It's something more than that, because the whole film, and now I'm talking about towards tenderness, I'm kind of going between new and that short, but the whole film is about like how these men see themselves like in this double consciousness, right? How they see themselves and their capacity for love through social, like, impose social definitions and through cliches, through narrative and cultural cliches. I found that really powerful how she was able to get this insight out of them. And then she switches from these two hetero men to a gay man and then to a couple, you know, and then a woman's voice comes in too. And again, constantly, you know, the domain is the Bonlieu, the domain is suburban life. And there's also scenes of travel that, again, make geography so central, like geography is central to the way she's thinking about these people's lived experiences. So there's just something about this, like in the link between the center and the margin that I feel like is being challenged at various levels and registers in these films that just hits me very hard. In uh, Towards Tenderness, I, the um, the sort of emphasis on love and sex as these subjects that are like actually kind of private and sh sort of shameful. Obviously, the discussion that you were mentioning of the sort of the parents' non-demonstrative attitudes towards each other, their lack of kind of affection towards each other, but also this sort of sense that what we're hearing or what the, the subjects are kind of kind of sharing with her are these kinds of, again, this is why I thought it was interesting, uh, you know, as a contrast to pa the Pasolini film. Uh, Comizia d'Amore, which is very much about this sort of like public discussion of sex and like Pasolini's really invested in like getting a crowd of people to like talk loudly about virginity and these kinds of, you know, these kinds of things and, you know, in, in a very public context. But here, this it, obviously for a very different, you know, set of subjects and kind of social and, and historical context, this sort of thing sort of recedes into the shadows and it's, it's marginalized, like liter literally, in, 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 you know, in, in, to the point that you're making. Yeah, and I, I haven't seen the Pasolini film, but I think it's really sometimes challenging to talk about things like toxic masculinity and race and economic disadvantagement, you know. I think these things like collapse into essentialisms often or apologism or the way we then talk about this seems to, for instance, exclude women of color, right? And the fact that she's able to bring it all together and have this empathy towards these men, I mean, you can hear her questioning in the scenes too. It's not just them talking. You can hear her questions and how she's talking to them. And so, you know, 
you you recognize this as toxic. You recognize like the way they talk to women and the way they see themselves as men, their roles as men as toxic. But you also see this context, both personal and political, like build around that. They recognize it. They the the subjects recognize it as toxic too, which is what's uh, I found. I think the fact that each one of these subjects is so precise in their analysis of their own situation and so aware of the problems that they face, it's really just sort of not something you see in movies. I mean, I would if reading the thumbnail description of this, I would not expect that. You know, you would expect the guys to be like just completely doofuses and have have never thought about why they behave the way they do. But I think this, this this is something that you see in her other films as well, that she's she gives her subjects the space to kind of be complex in this way and be analytical and be self-aware. You see that in New as well and Dan, The Death of Dan too. Yeah. That, these films seem sort of like an anomaly in some ways in the Art of the Real lineup in that they're very much relationship-based, it seems, like a director going out into the world with a camera and forming a bond with someone and making something out of that. Not that there aren't relationships that, you know, resulted in the films we're about to talk about, but in terms of that, you know, the ethics of representing another person and negotiating that on screen, it seems like they're kind of unusual in the compared to lots of other films. Yeah. I think that these films are very straightforward in, on the surface and that what makes them so special is something else. Like Devika was saying, it's just like hard to really pin down, but there's this kind of openness to the experience of the subject and to her, to the experience of the filmmaker that is uh, sort of sets them apart. But why don't we talk about some of the other films that are part of this lineup? I was just going to say, Chris, uh, I, I know one film we were all going to talk about was If From Every Tongue It Drips, which is also a very relationship-based film. If From Every Tongue uh, is a film that's directed by Charlene Bomboat. Um, it seems to kind of spring from a relationship between two women, uh, Pony Arasu and uh, Sorella Emanuel. Uh, Pony studies and translates recti poetry, which is feminist poetry that emerged in the 19th century. Uh, and as Pony explains, in the you know, 100, 200 years since that poetry emerged, there's been an effort to quote-unquote cleanse and purify um, the poems to like erase particular poets from the canon um, and to bury the queer origins of the work. And so her life seems to revolve around reclaiming and interpreting these poems. Um, and she spends a lot of time talking about that in the film. Um, but like while Recti Poetry is at the film's center, Pony also talks to the camera about plenty of tangentially related topics. Um, there's a lot of ground covered here. Words of independence to, you know, a choreographer who had a big impact on her. Um, it's all very engaging stuff and inspired me to go down a lot of internet rabbit holes. Um, but you know, what holds it all together, I think actually is Sorella, the pony's partner, who's the camera operator in the film. Uh, you can kind of like feel the love that she has for pony. I think in the way that she shoots her, there's like a sort of like strong intellectual crush that kind of comes across in all the images and adds this layer of sensuality to the film. Uh, so that was kind of but held it all together for me too. It, it might actually play very well uh, with the the Diop film that you were talking about, about uh, relationships, because I think one of the concepts that gets talked about is this idea of Dugana, which is um, this, about love between women and sort of like a form of it that doesn't have a possessive, if I'm representing this correctly. Um, and it's like, you know, this idea is being relayed between these two women while they're on bed and it's very intimate. And anyway, um, the thing that I've neglected to talk about with this film that might be worth mentioning is the captioning technique that's being used throughout it. This is, I'm, I'm blanking, I don't know if anyone remembers who it was that did the actual captioning, but it's a collective, I believe, out of Glasgow. It's a group called Collective Text. Collective Text takes this approach to captioning that's uh, beyond just like purely functional translation of text, it's like actually extremely descriptive, so much so that like it transforms the audio um, and how I was interpreting it throughout it. It makes me think that I'm a bad listener. Suddenly, like the sound of a stream becomes narrativized in a way that it never does to me when I'm listening to it. It's like a very poetic approach to it. And uh, yeah, I, I was extremely taken by that. I've seen, you know, other projects, I think, that have taken similar approaches to captioning. Alison O'Daniel, The Tuba Thieves, I think, has also played with captioning in a similar way. Um, but that was like certainly one of the elements I thought was most striking about the film. So. 
Yeah. And as a movie that's about, you know, partly about uh, uh, translation, one of the, the, the two women in the film is a translator. Uh, and it's an interesting kind of way of sort of taking that idea and kind of expanding on it into different ideas of or, or, or concepts of translation and access that I think is really, um, really fascinating to watch and, and creates these constantly different ways of relating. The whole film is about relation in, in so many ways, but creates for the viewer so many different ways of relating to the film. You know, I actually thought the film was set in India. Like, I didn't realize until well after watching the film that it's set in Sri Lanka. And that misrecognition, my own misrecognition, is interesting too, because the reason I thought it was in India was all its references are legible to me. I speak all those languages. And so it is like I occupy the shared world of that film. And that both misrecognition and bastardization of language are like such powerful themes in the film. So I just wanted to say a poem that reappears many times in the film by Fez Ahmed Fez called Hum Dekhenge or uh, We Shall See. Fez is a poet I have tattooed on myself, so a very important poet to me and to the Indian subcontinent. It's important that this film is about that because that was a poem written actually against the Pakistani dictatorship, against Zia-ul-Haq in Pakistan. And it was in the last two years, it's been used by Indian protesters against the Indian state in critique of the Indian state's, you know, authoritarian tendencies. And there were protesters who were booked for sedition for reading this poem that was originally written about a dictatorship in Pakistan. And the poem was kind of interpreted as being seditious to India. And so there was this misrecognition there, I guess, as if like the the state's like position that this poem is aimed at itself is there's an irony to it, you know, because of the enmities and constant like comparisons between the Indian and Pakistani state. And that became a big topic of conversation in India, a poem that India is sort of always comparing itself to Pakistan as like, oh, we are the democracy, we're a secular democracy and a poem that invited an authoritarian response in Pakistan, received the same response in India when it was used against the Indian state. And this, I think, is significant now that I realize that the poem is being used in a similar way in the Sri Lankan context. You know, there's this kind of borrowing, and that's why the context of pre-independence or pre-colonial India is also interesting, because all these various languages, like, signify geographical, but also, like, cultural nations, you know, that have then become solidified into states and that don't quite map onto each other. And I think the film really traces those continuities and discontinuities so well. And then a lot of the poem is also about like reading into Urdu poetry, into ghazals and nazams and finding queer themes, right? That's why the whole kind of interlude about the dogana that Chris, that you were referring to, this term in Urdu poetry that refers to the other self or the poet's alter ego that can also be interpreted as like a self-lover. So in a sense, a homosexual lover. So I don't know. I was just so fascinated by what you were just saying, Chris, like the breadth of themes that the film is able to open up through this theme of language and translation and mistranslation. And I'm just kind of reeling with the realization that it was set in Sri Lanka and not India. Somehow that feels very potent to me. (laughs) There's a shot where the camera person, you know, pans down to Pani's backpack and it says, I heart Shaheen Bagh. Yeah, which is the Indian reference, right? Yeah, that's a famous protest uh, in Delhi that happened last year uh, against the Islamophobic legislation called CAA, where uh, it was a protest organized by Muslim women, like a sit-down protest where they took over a square called Shaheen Bagh and basically interrupted, like disrupted traffic and occupied it for many, many days and like completely led Muslim women. So yeah, I mean, it's like resistance is like, building a transnational community here, uh, you know, and that then is like also finding historical resonances that uh, I was totally moved and absorbed by. 
There's that beautiful scene where she describes the tree in her backyard that turns red, but then she looks up and sees all the trees coming together at the top above, creating kind of a canopy. One thing that struck me about, uh, I don't even really know what, how, how to describe this kind of motion between the kind of very kind of intimate and the sort of expansive, the national, the sort of regional, the, the cosmic in the sense of you know quantum mechanics, um, kind of ties it a little bit to another film in the program, The Plains uh, by David E. Steele. Um, uh, which takes, which is a three-hour movie that takes place entirely uh, from the backseat of a of a car, as as a as a as a man, as middle-aged man, is driving, you know, commuting home from work, um, you know, in suburban Melbourne, and it's a film that is like as as sort of intimate and narrow, you might say, a perspective as as, as you could possibly uh, take on, but is also something that constantly has all these ripples of 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 of, of questions that are sort of much much larger, much much uh, exceed the sort of like boundaries of this this weird little tiny position that you're taking for the duration of the film. Yeah. Um, Chris, have you seen the planes? I haven't, but so many people have been talking about it since, was it Locarno where it premiered or Rotterdam? Rotterdam, I think. Rotterdam. Yeah. Yes, I have seen it. It's two hours and 59 minutes. Um, It's also about a 50 something year old man and his relationship with a red car. So there are two of those in one year, which is very cool. Um, (laughs) But uh, drive my car if you just wanted the drive. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, I mean, like when I read that one, like the log line for this film, I had imagined something that was just very rigid, like 15 minute long takes within a car and what is pleasantly surprising about it was that it was actually much more playful and its editing decisions were actually kind of more maybe emotionally driven than they were necessarily by like some strict rules uh, necessarily. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I kind of was constantly surprised like by the rules it was breaking. And also, I think one of the other things that I'm still wrestling with, I hadn't I haven't read very much about this movie, so I'm kind of just processing what I think it is. It's, it's two people in a car throughout the entire film uh, or maybe one guy by himself, half of it. Um, and then his co-pilot is the director himself, David Steele. But it, this question, you know, if we're talking about art of the real, if this is a if documentary footage or fiction, fictionalized kind of uh, recreations of these conversations that these two men have had was a little bit up in the air, actually, for me. I wasn't sure if it was like this experiment that was conducted over the course of a full year of commute. Um, but like, I think there's a point, maybe like two hours in where like it kind of actually... Um, became clear to me that there had to be some level of scripting in this because there's um, a device that gets whipped out an iPad that has all these clips. And it's a little bit too perfect, you know, when like the clips that start getting pulled up are like aligning with the conversations that you're hearing, but it takes like two hours for me to actually have any like to like know for sure that that's kind of what's going on in this film. And even in that moment, it feels like there is like a recognition that it's maybe you know, revealing that the subject is outside of the car in that moment. And he's like cleaning this apparatus that we've been spending these like two hours in as if like the film is also simultaneously kind of, uh, yeah, just showing its production to us at the same time, which might just be coincidence, but I kind of doubt it because I think this is actually in some ways pretty carefully scripted movie. But I, yeah, I, I think it's just, there are a lot of films I think that have take place within vehicles. It's not like a particularly new concept, but I don't know if I've actually seen one that like really commits to like showing how you can cut like as a form of character portraiture, like how you can come to know someone by spending, I mean, you kind of have to spend three hours to like truly fully feel like you understand someone. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I thought this was just like a really novel approach. Sort of a forced road trip type of situation. Yeah. So the camera is mounted in the middle backseat um it's it's a shot that i think i remember I was thinking, there's another film from art of the real 2000 i want to say probably 15 or 16 called a football by sergio oxman that i think has like a similar kind of driving shot going throughout it of sao paulo with the two men and the having exchanges throughout it so like I've, it's it's similar to that but i think in this thing one of the things about cars and how they developed over time is that the i mean there's like a, a another screen now in the middle of the shot um, where you can, you know, check radio. But I mean, the most what I found it most useful for is that you has a clock on it, so you can very clearly track time over the course of each one. You're like, like, but like, you know, I would find myself entranced, obviously, through the window, often looking at this, and then I would suddenly look down and realize that like 25 minutes had passed. Um, which is it's it's just a very neat trick. I don't know. This is a it's just a very it's way more fun than I had expected it to be, honestly. Um, 
Oh, I was going to ask about, about the title because I know there's the uh, Gerald Murnane novel, The Plains, and I was and so I, I saw this Australian movie called The Plains, and I was like, oh, is it an adaptation of the Gerald Murnane novel? And I don't think it is. It's not. I, I, there's no possible way it could be. But I'm wondering if there's if you guys can shed light on where that title comes from. I I, I could speculate. I don't know if I'm actually right though planes well i don't know if it's there is both like maybe the long vast stretch of land that they're passing during a commute or is it the land that he lives on i think it might be the land that he where his house is but i i don't i actually don't i actually have no idea and i didn't watch this that long ago so maybe it's not about him weekly in the film i don't know i hate every every time i reveal something about the movie i feel like i'm spoiling it honestly um but like there is this yeah this place where his his house is on like he operates a drone that makes me not want to watch the movie when I say that out loud, but like the thing, he's, <laughs> it's actually extremely funny. I mean, like it's, it's just like, that's the first kind of like interruption or like in the film's language. And it's actually very funny that it's, you know, after like 45 minutes of very rigid filmmaking, suddenly you're watching drone footage. I don't know. Like I laughed out loud when it cut to that. And that that's also like introducing this like this this visual language of like real estate. Yeah, actually, the, the connection that I was going to uh, suggest, and it's funny that Chris sort of mentioned something similar to this, but the thing, the film that it reminded me of is a much, much, much shorter film uh, called The United States of America, made in 1975 by James Benning. Not the new one, James Benning and Betty Gordon. Uh, uh, not the solo, uh, uh, film from this year, but, um, but, you know, to Chris's point, it's not that that's much more about kind of form and structure, uh, as kind of, you know, worked out through this, you know, filmmaking in that sense, exercise, uh, formal sort of technique rather that this is, even though it's sort of, sort of, you know, semi rigorously, you know, holds this to this particular, um, formal trope. It's re- actually really quite a funny and kind of really engaging and, and, and sort of tender film. And you really come quite familiar with this person by the end of, by the end of that, uh, two, uh, two hours and 59 minutes. Constantly trapped within the hours of like 5.05 and 5.35 on the same kind of stretch of road, which it plays with too. I was just going to say it's um, interesting. Every, all the films we've talked about so far have featured commutes in some capacity i mean new is you know the trains and toward tenderness both the diop films like feature scenes in a moving vehicle and actually so does from which it drips also features like scenes of driving through the city obviously the planes train again a short film by peter cherkasky which did everyone see that not not me but leo's seen it I okay think. leo you've seen it i've seen it yeah, um, I don't know if this is like by accident, um, you know, but it, quite an interesting motif because I saw a lot of these films back to back and I did. I think even the Eric Baudelaire has the florist trying to commute and failing, right? Yeah, I mean, not just a sense of being transported and this attention to, you know, urban topography, but also the sounds of just traveling which characterize you know i think which figure in some or other way in all of these films um you know sound is important to many of them too and the Cherkasky, you know i don't have anything intelligent to say about it so leo i, I will hand this over to you but all i want to say is like it it's like just very trippy <laughs> which is the most ineloquent compliment or comment it is a tour de force it is a tour de force of cinematic technique and and trippiness i feel like it's like ideal like every film student should have to watch this and like learn about an editing class or something i don't know you know i i went on a lot of long train journeys as a child like we would go on three day long train journeys to like visit relatives and stuff and i just associate the sound of a train and the like image of watching like the countryside, you know, passing by through the window with it just takes me back to my childhood. I associate it with like vacations. It's just something very soothing. And this film makes so much out of that kind of like visual movement and, you know, just the sound of a train. I just found it very soothing and at the same time, a very exciting to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like one layer. I think what's incredible is this movie's like 20 minutes long, right? And that's that is one layer of the experience that that is like communicated to the viewer. It also is talking about the history of 
cinema. It's also, you know, because, you know, trains play an important role, but also that the motion of the train is rhymes with the motion of the vertical up and down, the vertical motion of the reel of film. And there's constant references to the sprockets sliding in and out and the the train running by and running down the tracks. The The sound design is like kind of unbelievable. Yeah, it just seems like uh, he he's... Uh, leaving it all on the court as they say mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah which i mean Tchaikovsky is like someone who has a has a really long career i mean he's been making movies since i think the early 80s if not before that at least but he's you know uh, among a certain kind of set of austrian kind of found footage filmmakers you know who would include you know to some degree that many found footage films but uh, uh peter kubelka for example uh who had a long history with um, anthology film archives and and uh, austrian film museum um, but Tchaikovsky, you know, some people might know him, might be, maybe his most famous film, in, at least in this country, is a film called Outer Space. But he's also made other films that play with the uh, Lumière's Arrivée d'un train en Gare de la Ciota, uh, uh, the sort of first, you know, one of, one of the first sort of films exhibited um, uh, publicly. Uh, and so he has a long history with this idea of this connection between, you know, the... Um, you know the, the the sort of in, intertwined histories of kind of locomotive uh, travel and uh, and the cinema, which is something that that really you know is something that was very deeply connected right from the early uh, uh, you know kind of they were kind of coextensive histories, but also were often merged in you know phantom rides and 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 hails tours and other other kinds of like parasitomatic kind of carnival esque um, you know pre uh, proto Epcot Center uh, entertainments. But I mean this this film is really about also about kind of exploiting just the, the the sort of crazy messy violent like uh insanity of like locomotion and like mo- movies that feature you know train train crashes and like you know and, and it's really in- intense and he does it all through manipulation of images those train crashes are like were though I, I mean it's all borrowed footage right yeah it's all found the whole film is found footage and so there's train crash scenes are just like where I was trying to figure out where they could have possibly come from. <laughs> Those are incredible. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like, it's interesting also to think about how, you know, some found footage filmmakers really rely on your, uh, you know, knowledge of or kind of under, you know, of like recognition, the sort of cinephilic recognition. I think here he he's really trying to, and this is maybe kind of common for a lot of the films that I've seen of his, really trying to kind of get past that to really kind of get to the sort of... Um, just the violent impact itself, the energy, really, the like, kind of the, the the sort of powerful, kind of rhythmic and sort of sensuous energy that the, the rather rather than rather than to be like, check, you know, like I don't know, like the Last Godard film to be like, check it out. I've also seen Johnny the Guitar. Right, but it, it's like maximalist in that way and sort of you know almost indulgent. But again, it's just something so primal about the sound and feel of tra- a, the movement of a train. I don't know. I was just surprised by like how, again, cohesive and almost like re- regressive. Like it, it made me regress in some way, even though it's like this explosion of movement and color and sound. But there's something very pure about it. We should also mention for the heads out there that this is, you know, I, you know, I've only seen this movie on like Vimeo, but this is going to be projected in 35 millimeter, and it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to slap you in the face. We'll see you in the lot. <laughs> I saw it on my projector, but. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, I think that it, it also just like it's like extreme. It sounds maybe just like a madcap improv. Like it sounds crazy based on the description that we've given it, but it's also extremely rigorous. Like I think that's what's most impressive, and it's structured in this really clear way. There's different sections as the train, like the train, he kind of plays and with shots of a train, and then there's variations on that, and he brings in other footage to play against that. I think there's this opening sequence where the train coming out of a tunnel that's intercut with like maybe every couple of frames with a horse a shot of a horse moving in the opposite direction and so you have this incredible two seminal images of cinema the horse and the train yeah yeah <laughs> good name for a really annoying podcast on cinema <laughs> yeah and it also ends with a dedication to kurt kren right who's uh known and then a shot of a tree uh, which the title of the film is Train Again to play on Tree Again, the Kurt Krenn film, where he t- kind of tracks the changing state of a tree over a year. And I think it's a year. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, 
Yeah, I've never I've never seen the Kirk Cran film. It's certainly so not. It's, it's what I know about it. What I know about it doesn't sound very much like the Kirk Cran films that I do. Yeah, so. it's it's very <laughs> static. So it's like sort of the the opposite of this movie, which is like all dynamism all the time coming at you. Yeah, this is the actionism that that Kurt Cran was left out of his tree film. Maybe I don't know. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I'm curious about geographies of solitude. I'm telling you, the, these themes of like travel and commute and geography just keep coming up. Well, and, it, uh, uh, and Train Again is playing with uh, Anocha, Anocha uh, Suicha Kornpong's uh, film Come Here, which also has uh, ha, reference a specific, a, a very specific railway, the the, the Death Railway in, in, in Thailand, uh, but uh, also has uses, utilizes images and, and sounds of, of, of trains to quite... Uh, quite um i don't know in that case quite oniric effect i i, I think but yeah the, yeah there there are no vehicles really to be found in geography of solitude except for the plane i guess if it's a plane or a boat that brought uh this the main subject to the is it do you remember there's, Leo? and there's there's aerial shots and there are i think it was aerial, a plane, yeah. yeah i think it was a plane. sure um this is a film about zoe lucas this woman who has spent 40, 50, almost 50 years. No, 50 years now, I guess. Uh, is that right? 71, I think, has been this when moved to Sable Island, which is this island 100 miles away from Nova Scotia. And it's like 20 miles long, one mile wide, if I remember correctly. And she has like spent that entire time surveilling the hell out of this place. Like uh, every single movement of every single creature, every, you know, piece of plastic that is washed up on the shore. Uh, it's, 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 and she has logged this all in spreadsheets over time. Uh, and the film is sort of catching up with her in this very late stage in her life as she's wondering what it all meant. Um, and if it was worth it to do all this, you know, data, uh, tracking and analysis, um, and um yeah i mean the the director is who shot this on film uh a lot of the film kind of like it has a few different devices running through it one of them is this you know she tends to take materials herself from uh the land either you know animals and and sort of transform them in these like little mini experiments throughout into different animations or different songs uh you know, uh, taking like horsehair bones and sand and then exposing them in starlight and developing them in seaweed uh, and then letting that play on the screen for like a full straight minute or taking a, a device and hooking it up to a beetle and then somehow transforming that sound and letting it play out. So the film is like simultaneously tracking this woman while she's doing all this work on the land while also itself kind of uh, making, trying to take the life of this place and make it kind of tactile to uh through its own methods and um yeah i don't i don't know leo what you thought of this film the, the sort of kind of trying to sort of merge these projects of like portraiture and you know landscape film but with also with these kinds of techniques of maybe a kind of eco filmmaking a kind of trying to sort of you know unite the process of like filmmaking with this process of like you know mapping the mapping and kind of engaging with uh maybe as kind of like you know non-human collaborators the sort of ecosystem of the of the of the island is really fascinating and really dovetails with a lot of really fascinating recent um uh, experimental work by people like jennifer west uh i mean going back you know even even to carolee Schiemann's uh, uh fuses which you know famously uses you know urine and sunshine as, as as collaborators in that film and other filmmakers um uh you know who, who have like who have, who have buried film and you know there's a sort of a kind of a, a tradition of this um uh, this kind of like um, merging you know sort of the photochemical processes that are involved in uh in in analog filmmaking and film processing with other kinds of chemical and you know kind of biological 
uh, processes, I think is really, uh, and, and kind of what emerges is really not like a, a kind of a, just a sort of straight kind of biography or portrait of a, of, of a person, but actually kind of like a kind of collaborative, you know, kind of parallel project that I think really works um, and kind of emphasizes like her, her, her work as well. So, Yeah, I, th- I think the relationship in this movie is kind of what I found most compelling about it because it's, you know, kind of catches you off guard at a certain point when it starts really delving into the depression that this woman is dealing with um, as she suddenly like sees more, I shouldn't say suddenly, gradually starts to see more and more uh, plastic wash up on shore and starts kind of feeling like her work is worthless. Um, that that like completely like punched me in the gut when it was going on. I kind of prior to that was uh, surprised and maybe a little frustrated with how conventional actually the film is. It takes you know, at this lecture that the Zoe Lucas gave in 2015 um, and sort of it leans a lot on that to deliver context. Um, And it's almost that felt like in some ways kind of at odds with what she herself is saying she's doing in that lecture, which is not so much delivering a straightforward history of something, but is instead like wanting to relay the experience of something. And it felt like in times the film kind of, stopped being as experiential and as much about like allowing us as viewers to interpret it and more just kind of telling us lots of things. Um, uh, that, and if, if I had one other criticism of this film, which, uh, it was just that I think some of these experiments are like that it does with all these different materials from around the place are like totally, like, I understand the, the reason why it's, it's doing them and like on a conceptual level, but, they kind of just look like mediocre animation or unremarkable sounds kind of emerging from them. Honestly. Um, I don't, <laughs> that's maybe being a little bit harsh, but uh, it's, 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 it's kind of w- without the uh, text to explain what you're looking at. I don't think any emotions would be felt sometimes by uh, the materials. So uh, I'm nitpicking a little bit. I was, uh, <laughs> I was mostly. <laughs> Good to have some criticism in here, to... you know? You know, <laughs> all movies are not good. That's we must bust this. Well, one I would just in. I would just push back a little bit, and I'll defend the movie in that in that sense a little bit, just because I don't know. I'm, I'm maybe I'm more used to now. These, we're getting uh, these, to the beef. These, 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 uh, these kinds of things. Yes, yeah. finally the beef. Um, just to say that, like, I think that like it's important to sort of think about film material as also being like a kind of like a a, a material that is once obviously very very artificial, but also very much in, embedded in these uh, material, you know, kind of resources of the earth. Uh, often has extremely negative impacts on those as well. So there's there's a kind of question about like you know the 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 you know how to kind of you know, sort of see the kind of cycle of that kind of material life of, of something like film, which I think is part of that, whether that's, whether we find that's woven into a kind of documentary kind of structure, um, uh, clearly is, of course, maybe, maybe more your, more the point that you're trying to make. But I mean, I don't see it as, for, for example, that different from a project of something like, you know, um, a film, you know, like a sensor ethnography lab film, like, like Leviathan is trying to do with sort of digital material, trying to think about how it's, um, it's, you know, it's physical presence in, as a material in our lives, uh, it can, can be kind of utilized. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to fight against that at all. I agree with what you just said. There's no beef here. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, guys, take it easy. Everybody take it easy. Everybody just take a break. Take a deep breath. That's, that's what you think, Chris. <laughs> Getting way too intense. <laughs> Can I also just say that that like after after seeing after having seen over the last you know like ten or so years so many films about like uh, solitary dudes who are being doing their solitary dude things and like libertarian isolationism and it's like it's like there are great films made on those subjects but it's 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 nice to see a film about a, a, first of all a woman a solitary woman but somebody who's also not like it's not like exploiting her like you know, like, uh, questionable politics or, um, or yeah, weird. <laughs> Manny. What was the recent film, A Shape of Things to Come? Which was in Art of the Real a few years ago, yeah, or a couple, two, two years ago. I, I haven't seen, um, this film, but fits the description that, Leo, you're sketching here. There are many, many of those films and many, and, and, you know, like, look, there are many that I enjoy, but I, I just, I, I, um, uh, uh, I think it's this is a this is a distinctive one, especially I think because it's women like, can be loonies too. You know, women can do everything. Yeah, they can be nutcases too. Yeah, no, that that is absolutely that is absolutely the case. This doesn't 
Zoe Lucas doesn't appear to be one of them, but um, but I think you know, as you say, you know, uh, um, this uh, the idea that like a kind of interesting relationship emerges between Jacqueline Mills, a filmmaker, and Zoe Lucas, the the you know putative subject. Except that Zoe Lucas doesn't really seem to be want want to be on camera. She's just kind of like she's like you know what, just like just just do your thing. I'll I'll be over here. I, I I just I just want to quickly mention. I do think actually one of the most moving moments that I had watching Art of the Real Films was this cut to archival that exists in this film. Uh, that's you know like you said this film's been here for fifty something years, and you know when you have the film does a very good job of relaying the amount of detail and work that she has done over that time. And when the film has like one particular edit that I'm not going to spoil, uh, but that that cuts to the past and kind of I don't know it. For me, combining that with like the, her contemporary uh, frustration and maybe regret is a bit too strong of a word, but her, uh, yeah, these these kind of existential questions that she's wrestling with, it was, uh, yeah, really caught me off guard and made me choke up for a second. So, uh, yeah, good, good one here. Speaking of archival, experimental, material, film stuff. Uh, this is my transition to. You could be going any, any to any other movie. This is my transition to the Eric Baudelaire film called "When There Is No More Music to Write" and other Roman stories, which Clint you liked, didn't you? Uh, do you want me to? Do you want me to explain what it's about? Yeah. I don't know if I liked. Okay, so I have. I think I don't know if I loved this movie, but I could tell you what it's about. I just said liked, that? which you told me you did. More or less, I liked the voiceover. I thought that the voiceover from the avant-garde composer Alvin Curran was very interesting. There's three Roman stories of the title, and they all sort of deal with radical politics and art in Rome in the 60s. Although I think that actually, I think the 70s, the sec, the the first story tells a story of a Red Army assassination um, from the from the late 70s. And the second story is images from California. No, it's uh, Zabriskie Point. I think almost all of it, and maybe all of it is, yeah. But I think the story is Alvin Curran's story of being in Rome, beginning to become a composer the first story deals directly with this red army red uh, red brigades the red brigades thank you sorry yes red army is not involved right. and the cow is foiled by like flower salesman florist having to get his florist bon louis having to get his car towed that'll be shorthand for me saying something wrong <laughs> all of the visual material is archival and found footage and it's this kind of cacophony. Oh, so the second story is a brisky point, the movie. Yes. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, yeah. The movie is a, yeah, the Antonioni movie. And the soundtrack to that, which you hear in the background, is, uh, m I think it's Musica elect Electronic Electronica Viva. Yeah. Um, again, my Italian's about as good as my French, <laughs> which was an avant-garde group that Alvin Curran, the interview subject of the third, and I think the second one as well, was a member of in the 60s and they were sort of an avant-garde improv collective of composers. And so they, they did some soundtrack work on Antonioni's Zabriskie Point. So the second section is kind of a collage of desert scenes from, from that film with this unused soundtrack material punctuating it. And the third story is Alvin Curran sort of discussing his philosophy of music and art. But it's a little bit longer than the others. And he's an American musician living in Rome. So, yeah, talking about those experiences. Yeah. And the politics of this group of Americans living in Rome was they were radical leftists. So that's the world that Alvin Curran's coming from. And so, I don't know, d d Leo, what what do you have to say about this film? <laughs> lay it lay down. Sure. Take, yeah. Take it away. I mean, I think first of all, I I I really I really loved it. I mean, I'm big, you know, really interested in Alvin Curran and 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 that and that work. But also, I really um, I'm really interested in Baudelaire's um, kind of trajectory of kind of evolving sort of interests in kind of 60s and 70s radical uh, politics and how these kinds of things come together in this film. I think is really kind of fascinating. I mean, it's not a conventional music documentary unless unless you've missed that so far. Um, uh, uh, so you know, people who maybe don't know much about Curran, I don't know if you know how they're going to um, uh, react to it, but but you know, also you know, I think it is a really fascinating uh, uh, film and how that how you know Baudelaire is sort of trying to kind of 
you know, kind of pinpoint these kind of specific moments in in in, in Curran's sort of career and in, in this particular kind of kind of context. And I think in particular what I what I really like about it, and I think that the this is often the case in with well it, it, with with Baudelaire's films, is that these sort of elements that we're talking about the found footage, the 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 use of you know of, of archival footage of of you know sort of you know, current events and things like that, but also uh, uh, from you know feature film from Zabriskie Point. Um, and Curran's voiceover, the music, these are all kind of held, I think, in kind of in kind of separation from each other. They're not, you know, they're not necessarily sort of one is not necessarily illustrating the other. And I really like in Baudelaire's work, especially some of you know, the work that he's the work that he's done over the years, especially I'm also gonna say his his editor, Claire Atherton, who edited, you know, Ackerman's films. And, you know, I think there's this real sense when you're watching the film that they're that they're that they're thinking through these images in really fascinating ways. And that I like being kind of involved in that process. I think that as a, as a viewer, um, I just think that it's, there's, there's a lot going on in the edit and the kind of attention to the image and the, you know, especially with, you know, Zabriskie Point, we're not looking at just images from Zabriskie Point. We're looking at kind of details from images and, um, there's this kind of process of, of, you know, dialectical, but also kind of sort of, uh, moving in lots of different directions between the different, uh, sort of subjects that, 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 that the film is holding in place. Yeah, I really liked the first segment the most. The second two are also quite engrossing and interesting. I found them to be a little looser, but the first one is pretty abstract. It's like these archival images that are really pixelated and they obscure what whatever they're trying to show. And the sound isn't quite music. It's not quite everyday sound. It's somewhere in between. And it made me feel like... It was not non-diegetic, but it wasn't diegetic either because these images are so abstract and they're of things that you can't quite place and they're off like streets and windows. And then the the sounds seem very kind of familiar as if they are things you could hear if you were like walking down a street, but you couldn't hear any voices. You could only hear sounds. That's actually an Alvin current piece, the, an early one, right? And she, uh, yeah, recording. yeah. It And I, I believe that's the piece is you know is kind of using non-traditional instruments and objects right the the sound he would often incorporate found sounds and field recordings so many of his works have like you know are exclusively field recordings manipulated in different ways but i think that the that Baudelaire kind of plays with that the sound the image the voiceovers as leo was saying keeping them all in tension yeah i really liked that that aspect of like they somehow seem to go together, but not perfectly, but they're not apart either, the sound and the image. And then, of course, the story of this particular incident involving the florist and the Red Brigades. Um, just And the story is very much about like the city, you know, it's very much about like... Um, taking a bus and then driving back and then finding himself in a street and just the how something kind of historic emerges out of something very, you know, out of like the serendipitousness of just like city life and, and urban interactions. And so the three things, that level of narrative and the sound and image just interact in this. I was very kind of transfixed by that. I thought the other two were looser and maybe a little more traditional, especially the third segment, because it's a voiceover of Alvin like talking about his life. I also like, Leo, I am, you know, you were saying I, you wonder what someone who doesn't know about the musician, you know, how they would experience it. And I am that person, you know, <laughs> I didn't really know about Alvin Korean and I was looking up the blurb um, and then piecing all of this together. So maybe you know, I was kind of excluded from that knowledge. So we've gotten through like a lot, actually, and we are at the end of our time, but we wanted to give both of you an opportunity to maybe if, if there's anything we didn't get to that you wanted to shout out, Chris, I know you saw quite a, a bunch of movies and there were a couple that you really liked. If you you know want to recommend. I think one that actually I think both Leo and I watched and I actually I can't speak for Leo. I don't know if you like this, but uh, this house, I think was one of the the films that stood out to me this is a film by Miriam Charles I didn't read the synopsis before I watched this film and I've actually kind of avoided text and uh without kind of any context I found this a little inscrutable on first pass for stretches of it uh 
and then I went back and rewatched it and a lot more became clear on the second viewing of what this film was up to. Um, I mean, what, what was very clear on first viewing is that this is a film about uh, this young girl, 14 years old, who uh, was whose parents are from Haiti, but they immigrated to the United States, which is where she was born in Connecticut. Um, and at 14 years old, she was assaulted and killed. And this film is sort of, it's it's responding to that. And I think the, the film is, says like at the very beginning that it's about kind of inventing stories and kind of uh, imagining just things that are in some ways taken from this reality, but are not exact, like direct uh, recreations of it um, and trying to imagine what happened to her, what could have been, etc. cetera. And uh, the, I, I've, I've now Googled this, uh, I, this the, I believe this is the director's uh, niece is who the film is actually about. And when you have that context, obviously it kind of helps viewing this film is sort of an extension of the grieving process almost. Um, I think like even without that context, though, it was clear that there had to be some sort of personal connection because the film kind of, as it stages these scenes, like of, you know, this young girl's mother learning about her daughter's death in a hospital room or the state coming to visit afterwards with sort of a follow-up visit to see what happened um, at the, the family house. Um, all these sort of like scenarios like have this very, very real kind of like almost psychodrama type intensity going on in each of them. Um, they're all acted, I should say, all these scenes that I'm talking about by um, some sort of I don't know exactly who the who's playing these roles. But um, I think like the the way that she stages them is extremely striking. It's a, clearly kind of all unfolds on this set where all of these bedrooms and hospital spaces are all sort of clearly drawn from the actual ones, but there's always something a little bit off. Like, you know, the the, the living room isn't just full with plants. It almost like resembles a garden. Um, when the state is conducting an interview, it's not like sitting in a couch uh, in the living room. It's they're placed outside of a window looking in. And so there are all these like little things that are slightly off and have make it kind of have this almost sort of dreamlike feel when you're watching all these sort of scenes. And um, there are just very intense emotions coming out, which I guess is a testament to the performance. But um, at the very end, yeah, I don't know. I, I was I, I don't I don't exactly know what to do with it other than just to say that I was very moved by this film uh, and think the director is clearly extremely talented. Um, that was that's the film that I think probably stood out to me that we haven't gotten to the most. But I went long on that. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Liam. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I mean, I I I I I think you put put it beautifully. I don't have much to add about the film itself. I just wanted to give a shout out to my buddy Giri Shambu, who uh, just wrote a very uh, excellent piece on reenactment and documentary uh, uh, for for film comment for the for the letter. I think that that that's a you know kind of a useful kind of introduction to kind of contemporary working you know ideas of integrating you know reenactment and kind of fictionalized and sort of you know even in this case sort of like it takes the form of like some staged tableau uh, as part of the kind of palette of documentary um i think he does a, a really excellent job of kind of talking about how that kind of came and went and in terms of fashions of, of, of documentary right you know across its history leo did you also have anything you you've also seen a lot in this lineup anything you want to you know close this out on just make sure people know about it yeah. Um, uh, wow. There's like a. I'm, I'm looking at the list now, and there's a. Uh, there's really a bunch. I would say, you know, just a, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things really, uh, uh, really quickly. I mean, on the topic of kind of reenactment and kind of integrating kind of fictionalized things, I think um, Jonathan Perel's camouflage is 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 amazing. Uh, uh, Perel is a filmmaker who. Um, kind of most of the films that people might know of his really are are, are more like essay film um, works, but this one is kind of an interesting mix of staged and documentary scenes uh, around a particular site, the Campo de Mayo, which was one of the kind of key military bases, kind of like torture uh, um, uh, centers, detention centers um, in, in uh, outside Buenos Aires during the uh, Argentina's Dirty War. Um, uh, you know, he's a filmmaker who has had interest in like landscape and his other films, and this is kind of coming at it from a different way. Um, and there's a couple of, there's certainly a lot of films that deal with landscape across these things, including 
uh, Zhang Fan Yang's uh, Footnote, which is a really um, sort of striking film about about um, uh, kind of uh, we were talking about seeing things from a car window earlier, but this is really just from the window of his his apartment, really during kind of I think lockdown in, uh, in his lock, his apartment in Chicago, uh, and he is the partner and producer of um, of Sheng Xi uh, Zhu, who's made a lot of really great films, which probably a lot of people would know, uh, um, including A River runs turns erases replaces uh, another year um, a lot of really great things but he's also a, a really interesting filmmaker in his own right and uh made a really great film called distant um uh, some years ago which i really like uh so yeah i'll, I'll do one more just to, just why not because i think uh it's a it's a really this is this is the you know uh this kind of program you might not think of as being the kind of like we've already talked about peter Tchaikovsky, but if you were also interested in you know another another screening that's sponsored by the newly created new york state office of Cannabis Management uh, is a, um, a film called uh, Supernatural by uh, Georges uh, Jacomet, which is kind of, I think, you know, some years ago, Ben Russell was talking about his films as being kind of psychedelic ethnography. And I think that this is very much in that line as well, uh, uh, um, while also kind of, you know, sort of quasi, you know, like self-help new age, um, uh, you know, experience. Well, then good recommendations for the uh partaking among our audience and we have some for the uh, for those who don't as well obviously so a wide range of choices at this year's art of the real thank you both for joining us today it's been eye-opening and we've learned a lot about these movies and uh yeah yeah See you it's soon. such a pleasure to have you both on yeah thanks it's been fun the film comment podcast features original music by greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.